0: Friends, today I have the great privilege of proclaiming to you God's good news for the entire world. The good news that in Jesus Christ, especially in his death and resurrection, God has taken decisive action to save his people from their sin. The 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians is all about the good news of sin cancelled of divine judicial wrath averted, Satan, death, and the grave defeated, and the ultimate display of God's incalculable love, all in Jesus' death and resurrection. And this morning, I want to proclaim to you that gospel, that good news. Uh, Gospel means good news in Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament. And this good news, as it relates to the death and resurrection of Jesus, is at the very center of Christian life. I I think it's fair to say that at the center of Buddhist thought is enlightenment. At the center of Roman Catholic theology are the sacraments. At the center of Islam, there are the five pillars. But the center of biblical Christianity is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the gospel is different from all those other things. The Apostle Paul tells us in this chapter that the gospel is a matter of first importance that saves people from the consequences of their sin, which is something philosophical enlightenment, the sacraments of Rome, and the five pillars of Islam is incapable of affecting. So throughout this sermon, I'll be simultaneously addressing two groups. The first is anyone who has never heard of or who does not understand or who does not believe the spectacular news of what God has accomplished in the crucified and resurrected Son, Jesus Christ. Friend, I want to show you from the scriptures why the God-man murdered on a cross and then rising from the grave is good news for a guilty sinner like you and why it's imperative above all other concerns in this life that you believe it. The other group I'm addressing are my brothers and sisters in Christ, guilty sinners, all, yet forgiven sinners. Because by God's enabling grace, we've believed God's good news about his crucified and resurrected son. And as a local church, we've gathered this morning to give glory to the God who so loved the world that he sent us his son, our crucified and our resurrected king, the Lord Jesus Christ who through our union with him has guaranteed the future hope of our own resurrection from the grave. Now, our passage today occurs in a certain context. And to set that context, to give credit where it's due, I'm borrowing freely from an excellent summary by Stephen Wellham. And uh, as we've seen throughout this whole sermon series in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church really prided herself on being spiritual quote-unquote but sadly in many key areas their worldview wasn't informed by the teaching of the bible they were still adopting the outlook of the surrounding pagan culture on many fronts and so that led to divisiveness in the church we saw that sexual immorality in the church lawsuits Between Believers, uh, Abuse of the Lord's Supper, and the Abuse of Spiritual Gifts. The list goes on and on. And Wellam writes this, If there was ever a perfect example of the maxim, ideas have consequences. It was in Corinth. And in chapter 15, we discover another sad example of how false ideas of spirituality can lead to disastrous, disastrous consequences. Some in the church are denying... There's a future resurrection of the dead. Now, let's be clear. These Corinthians aren't denying the reality of an afterlife. They're denying the future resurrection of the dead in terms of its bodily, physical bodily features. So if you look at your your bulletin, problem number 10, some Corinthian Christians are denying that God will resurrect the corpses of believers. I just like how the corpses just flashes out I say exactly what's being denied the corpses of believers will rise from death and it's being denied That's the issue. And Paul is deeply concerned by this because the denial of a future bodily resurrection if properly understood is actually a denial of the gospel itself. Ideas have consequences and this is one of the worst. Because if the gospel is anything, it's good news that's centered in Jesus Christ, in his cross work, and his bodily resurrection. And if that falls to the ground, then the gospel is of no effect, and we're still in our sins. Because Jesus' resurrection isn't just any old resurrection. It's not like Lazarus rising from his grave. Jesus' resurrection is is the resurrection, par excellence. It's what the scriptures have anticipated all along. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the final consummated state that's still to come. Jesus' cross and resurrection is the event that restores what was lost under Adam and his rebellion in the garden. Jesus' resurrection ushers in a new creation, a new creation in which believers participate through our union with Christ. So, in one sense, we should be thankful for this sad confusion going on in Corinth, not because we want to rejoice in their errors, uh, but here now we have an entire chapter, and it's a long chapter at that, devoted to the centrality of Jesus' resurrection to God's redemptive purposes, and the glorious future hope that is ours if we are in Jesus Christ. So let's unpack this gospel treasure. And the plan today is to cover the first 19 verses and then in the, re- the remaining 39 over the next two weeks. So three sermons in all looking at the resurrection. And our first point is an affirmation of the central role of the resurrection of Jesus in the gospel message itself, uh, the first 11 verses. And I want us to think of that as being sort of like the, the, big, the big heading, all right, for this opening uh, 11 verses. This is the umbrella heading. It's what cements the context because Paul's really dealing with two things here. He's affirming the central role of Jesus' resurrection in the gospel message, But in confronting this error of the Corinthians, he's also clarifying what the gospel itself is, which he does in verse 3. But the apostle begins in verses 1 and 2 with some prefatory remarks concerning the gospel that are essential to understand, and that's what I want us to turn our attention to first. So you can see the outline in the bulletin. Some remarks about the gospel, good news, intricately linked to the resurrection of jesus the gospel is announced the gospel is received the gospel saves the gospel is a matter of first importance first corinthians 15 1 to 2 now brothers and sisters i want to remind you of the gospel i preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand it's like Past tense, that's what I did, that's what you did, you're presently standing on this. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. That is the gospel itself. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Do you know what a a herald is? Uh, Heralds were originally messengers sent by kings and queens to convey messages or proclamations to the people so uh, they were kind of the guys in the old-fashioned days with you know the big trumpets and uh, so if a king was going to raise taxes say he would send out a herald into the into the village square of all the towns in his kingdom and that herald would then blow his trumpet and proclaim to the people bad news (laughs) the king is raising taxes now it's very important we notice in verse one that the gospel is something paul preached to the corinthians Paul acted like a herald to the Corinthians announcing verbally God's spectacular news. And I think it it might be wise for us just to stop for a second and do some self-examination at this early point. Uh, Christian, when we, uh, quote-unquote, share the gospel, do we verbally herald God's good news concerning the death of and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sin. Now, obviously, that good news can be approached from a thousand different angles, but uh, there's no one cookie-cutter methodology that's applicable to every person, every situation. But there is there is a basic, non-negotiable deposit of information that needs to be conveyed, that needs to be proclaimed, that needs to be heralded to a person if we are to say that we've honestly preached to them the gospel? Christian, have you been heralding the gospel? Have you proclaimed what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus for sin to somebody in the last, say, three months? The last 12 months? Have you ever? I ask that question because the gospel is good news from God that saves eternal souls. This isn't something we're keeping to ourselves. We're not allowed to. Ask yourself, do you think it uncivil to present the claims of Christ to unbelievers if they've not first asked you? about your faith is that uncivil in your thinking let me assure you i i struggle with these same social pressures i i I tell myself i don't have i don't have the right to bother my neighbors with the claims of christ upon their lives I'm a good Canadian. <laughs> their, their religious beliefs—I mean, that, that's their own affair, right? I mean, I, I hope—I hope they'll ask me one day about my faith in Jesus Christ. But, but I'm not going to take the first step in this matter. They might find me offensive and, and a busybody meddling in their spiritual affairs. Then years pass by. My neighbors and family have not asked me about Jesus Christ out of the clear blue sky, and I begin to wonder if I will ever talk to them about the Lord. Loved ones, a Christian must break with these social conventions if they if they hinder evangelism. To say I'm a polite Canadian is not an excuse. Do we really believe that people are, are eternally lost, apart from Christ or do we merely mouth that sentiment as a dry creed without any genuine sense of the enormous entailments we've received a commission from our resurrected lord to preach the gospel and to make disciples this is a non-negotiable directive from the resurrected lord Jesus himself to neglect this great commission in the name of politeness or social conventions may signify that we've not counted the cost of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We may fear potential reproach from friends or colleagues more than the Lord's disapproval. But if we really believe that people are eternally lost apart from Jesus Christ, we will feel compelled to speak about Jesus. This is a life or death matter. So have you been heralding the gospel, Christian? Now be careful. If we have a sunshiny disposition at work or on campus, And someone asks us why we're so cheerful all the live long day. And we reply because Jesus loves me and because he gives me peace and joy. He has a wonderful plan for my life and I'm living in God's will. I'm in relationship with God. All of that may be true, but we mustn't leave that conversation thinking we've been heralds of God's good news. Or if we were to ask someone if they believe in Jesus and they say certainly not, and then we respond by saying, But don't you know? Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is God. We have not preached the gospel that's that's pre-evangelism and that's fine we want to get our foot in the door any way we possibly can but the gospel is the verbal announcement of what god has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son for sin not an attestation to the divinity of jesus as well if we give our personal testimony of how we came to the christian faith we have not shared the gospel Uh, The gospel is the announcement of what God has done and must never, ever, ever be confused with our response to it. Similarly, the gospel is not receiving Jesus or believing in him or being converted or joining a church. The gospel faithfully declared and rightly received will result in people receiving Jesus, believing in Jesus, being converted, joining a local church, but such steps are not the gospel itself. Look at verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So all in the past tense. But by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. What did the Corinthian brothers and sisters receive? They received the gospel. They believed the gospel. Paul preached to them the good news of what God accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, and they received it, they believed it, they welcomed it. Upon this gospel, they took their stand, and and, and they're standing firm. They have not apostatized. That's what he's saying. And if they continue to stand firm in that good news that Paul preached to them concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus, they will be saved. And that word saved, obviously, is super important because we're not saved from things that are slightly annoying, right? We're not saved from a hang now. People are saved from a burning building. People are saved from a sinking ship. The gospel has saved us, beloved, from something terrible. That's what makes it good news. Do you see what Paul, how he's setting this up? He's preparing us, right? This is a powerful way of telling all of us to pay close, close attention to the verses that follow. So I want you to remove every distracting thought from your mind right now. Paul is about to proclaim the gospel. He's about to proclaim something God calls a matter of first importance. The gospel which saved the Corinthians and which will save us if we receive it with persevering faith like they did. So here it comes. Here's the crux of all history. The only hope of our salvation, verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And friends, that is the most important news. That is the greatest news a human being will ever hear proclaimed in their lifetime. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried was raised on the third day according to the scriptures every one of our eternal souls is wrapped up with those verses all of human history every aspect of human existence both now and in eternity is tied up with the reality of those two verses it's a matter of first importance and if you're not trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if, that's, if what's being taught in these verses is something as of yet you do not believe, then right now, as you sit in your chair, friend, I, I want you to lay a hold of God in prayer. I want you to pray in your heart, Lord, fill, please fill my mind with understanding. The Bible says that this is a matter of first importance that will save my soul. Pastor John, he he looks sincere. He obviously believes it, but I'm still not sure. Make me sure, Lord. Grant me grace to see the truth of this text, I pray. Will you humble yourself and pray such a prayer to God right now? The gospel is is announced the gospel is received the gospel saves the gospel is a matter of first importance but there's more and the way i've divided the rest of the text follows john stott's famous outline of the passage the gospel is christ-centered the gospel is theological the gospel is personal the gospel is historical first of all the gospel is christ-centered our passage reads, Christ died for our sins and was raised again according to Scripture. Now, we live in a very secular culture. And, and by secular, what I mean is uh, we live in a culture where our faith is constantly marginalized. It's pushed to the periphery, right? right? Religious faith is, is insignificant. It's not part of public discourse. That's a very private thing, faith. Uh, but if someone were to die and we were to express our condolences to the family by saying, my, my prayers are with you. That would be a socially appropriate expression of faith in God. Even in Canada, there's a bland form of nonspecific theism that's generally accepted and won't raise too many eyebrows if it's mentioned in public, and that's one of those things. But once we begin to bring in some biblical specificity to the person of God, people get upset, really upset. uh, Because now we're drawing a line in the sand, aren't we? We're saying that we've we've gone to an authoritative, culture-transcending, revelatory source to learn about who God is, what he's like, and how we're to relate to him. I, I was called upon once by the CEO of a company in Toronto to pray for the meal at a corporate Christmas party, and as a courtesy, I told her up front, if I, if I were to pray for this meal, it would be in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, because when a person prays in the name of Jesus, that's not a generic prayer to a generic God out there somewhere, right? It's, it's, it's exclusivistic by its very nature. Uh, there's a biblical specificity in prayers offered up in Christ's name that's actively attacking bland, non-specific theism, and it can be very offensive. And the same thing applies to salvation. The good news that saves us couldn't be more specific and exclusivist. The gospel that is of first importance and that saves souls is Christ-centered. Which is why all other schemes of salvation are false. And Christians don't say that because we're intolerant, narrow-minded, epistemological barbarians, but because it's true. God has revealed this truth to the world in the Bible. The good news of God that saves souls in Canada, in Iran, in North Korea, in Japan, in Russia, in France, in Argentina, is centered on the person of Jesus Christ alone. In the book of John, Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Chapter 14, verse 6. In the sermons reported in Acts, there is no name but Jesus given under heaven by which we must be saved. Chapter 4, verse 12. In Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Jesus is the last Adam, the one to whom the Old Testament law and the prophets bear witness the one who by God's own design propitiates God's wrath. So do you see the reason why the reason why the gospel has the power to save sinners is because Jesus Christ is at its very core. So if Christ is not being preached, then the gospel is not being preached. But it's not just a gospel preached about the person of Jesus, the person of Christ, is what God has done for us in Christ through his death and resurrection. And every Christian must ask themselves, is that what we get excited about when we proclaim the gospel? Is is that where the emphasis falls? Jesus at the center, crucified and risen. Must be, because any system of salvation, any scheme of forgiveness, any plan of reconciliation to God that makes the crucified and risen Jesus a non-essential negotiable component is a lie, and it won't save anybody's soul on the day of judgment. Why? Because the gospel is theological. Notice verse 3 doesn't say, Christ died and rose again. Rather, it says, Christ died for our sins and rose again. That moves Jesus' death out of the merely historical realm. There was once a man named Jesus, and like 10,000 other guys, he got crucified, into the theological realm. This man's life served, this man's death served a purpose. This man died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. And, of course, we can only glimpse the power of this claim if we understand how sin and death are related to God in Scripture. And Paul's assuming that his Corinthian readers already understand this relationship. He's writing to the Corinthians who have already believed the good news of the gospel, which counteracts the bad news of sin and death. They all agree... On the solution God has provided in the death of his son, because they all agree on the problem. But perhaps I'm speaking now to someone here who doesn't understand the nature of the problem, the gravity of the problem, a problem common to every person on this planet, a problem universal in scope, so I'm not singling you out. Listen to me very carefully all of our problems without exception all of our problems can be traced to this fundamental source our rebellion against God who is our maker whose image we bear and whose rule we seek to overthrow and the just curse of God that we've attracted by our rebellion that rebellion where we shake our defiant, puny little fist in God's face and say, I will be God. I I am autonomous. You have no say how I live, God. I love other things more than you, and I will not live how you command me to live. That rebellion attracts God's just wrath. It attracts God's personal Anger. God is a person. And that angers him, that defiance. That is our biggest problem. It's the fundamental source of all of our problems. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 3, we are all by nature children of wrath. And because God loves justice, because he hates evil, rebels like you and me are deserving of God's judgment. And that judgment is death. Mortal death here on earth, and then what the Bible calls the second death and an eternal hell. Those are the stakes, and that's what makes the simple words of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, so profoundly theological and good news of the first importance. Christ died for our sins. Friend, there you have Christianity in a nutshell. At the cross, we see the judgment of death for the crime of sin, but it's a substitutionary death. It's a vicarious death. Jesus, the Holy One, dying in the place of others, guilty sinners. Jesus died for our sins. By this gospel, by this good news, you are saved, Paul writes. Now, obviously, a great deal of theology is presupposed by those few words, in particular, what we're saved from. Jesus' death and resurrection saves us from an eternal judgment sentence bound up with God's holy wrath. Holy Jesus takes that punishment that sinners deserve. On that wretched cross, Jesus took our condemnation, and we, through faith, receive all the benefits of that substitutionary sacrifice. Salvation, friend, is a free, free gift. It cannot be earned. Repentant sinners just believe, and God forgives us for Jesus' sake. Friend, do you realize that as you sit there in your seat, you may, by God's enabling grace, repent of your anarchy against God and he'll save you this very instant. There's, there's, there's no elaborate ceremony. There's no religious ritual. Just believe in your heart that Jesus died for sins and was raised according to the scriptures. Place your trust in him alone and you will be saved forever. Saved from the chaining power of sin? Saved from its eternal consequences? Or do you prefer your sin? Is that why you don't repent? Because you prefer it? Because you love your sin? That leads to death. And know this, when the Bible says, believe the gospel and you will be saved, it's not telling you to believe a myth or a fable with no basis in historical reality. No, the death and resurrection of Christ are tied together in history. And the way we have access to Jesus' death and resurrection is the same way that we have access to any historical event through the record of those who witnessed the events. Verse 1, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is the apostle Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, What's Paul doing? Why is he writing all that? What's his point? He's telling the church at Corinth that the historical claims the apostles make about Jesus' resurrection can be verified by hundreds of living witnesses. That's essential because the claims of Christianity are historical claims. When when Muhammad comes along six centuries after the fact and proclaims Jesus did not die on a cross and rise again from the grave, he's making an historical claim, isn't he? But it's a claim that contradicts the eyewitness testimony of hundreds of people. And Paul goes on to insist that if Jesus is not risen in history, then faith that believes he did is futile, and Christians are to be pitied as deluded fools because we're still in our sins. Now, I hope this next question doesn't sound too perverse for a a Sunday morning corporate worship service, but what if we found uh, the real grave of Jesus of Nazareth, and somehow we knew beyond a certainty that that was Jesus' grave? We did DNA testing or something, I don't know, and there wasn't any doubt, though, that was his grave, and yet his bones... We're still inside the tomb. Jesus did not rise bodily from death. It was all a lie. What would you do, Christian? I hope every Christian here would have the honesty to apostatize. Abandon the faith forthwith, right? Because we've been duped, friends. We've believed the lie. It won't do any good to tell ourselves, I believe that Jesus is alive somehow and he's, al- he's risen in my heart. Or some such nonsense. It doesn't work that way. Make no mistake, we're not saved by theological ideas about Jesus. We're, we're saved by Jesus himself, the son who entered history and who died and who rose again in history. Now the fact is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the most thoroughly attested event in all of ancient history. The historical eyewitness firsthand evidence is overwhelming and the textual manuscript evidence is second to none in the ancient world. God made sure it was overwhelming because our faith hinges on its historical veracity. The saving gospel hinges upon its historical veracity. Verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has has being raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, ideas have consequences. But Paul's getting the Corinthians to follow the logic of a world where Jesus is raised from the dead in history, in accordance with the scriptures, yet where there is no bodily resurrection for those united to him because that's what some of the Corinthians believe but that's inconceivable that would mean the power of death and hell and satan triumphs over the power of the gospel don't the Corinthians see the logic of what they're doing by denying the resurrection of believers corpses from the grave in bodily form it's it's a gospel shattering disaster and so in our second point, Paul pushes the people to see the logic of their beliefs. He pushes them to see that their pagan ideas have devastating, soul-damning Gospel obliterating consequences if pushed to their logical conclusion. What Paul demonstrates in verses 13 to 19 is that to deny the resurrection is to strip the Christian message of seven essentials. To deny the resurrection means one, Christ himself has not been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, two, the apostles' preaching is useless. Three, your faith is useless. Four, the apostles are false witnesses who misrepresented God. Five, you are still in your sins. Six. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are eternally lost. And seven. We are of all people most to be pitied. Ideas have consequences. The theology of the Bible is interconnected. It's all linked. So if we start adding a little bit to the gospel over here, and then taking away from the gospel a little bit over there, uh, or, or, or you know, just tweaking this teaching a bit to fit in more with the culture or tweaking that doctrine to make it more palatable to our 21st century sensibilities, we end up pulling the temple down on our heads. To Deny the resurrection of the dead means Christ has not been raised. Look at verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. (coughs) Paul's saying, Okay, for the sake of argument, let's allow that your position is correct. Let's say there is no resurrection of the dead. That logically means that no one has or ever will rise from the dead, which means that not even Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that's just the logical argument. Next week, Lord willing... Uh, we'll look at Paul's theological argument where we see that there's actually a causal connection between Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection of believers on the last day. Uh, There's a theological link between Adam, in whom all die, and in Christ, in whom all are made alive. So to deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny the resurrection of the one who makes any and all resurrections possible. Now, Of course, the Corinthians never intended to suggest that Jesus was still moldering away in his tomb. Paul is pressing the logic of their position to reveal its menace. This is dangerous stuff. And here's the second implication: to deny the resurrection of the dead means the apostles' preaching is useless. So think of a think of a snowball rolling down a hill. It starts out with this little nugget of no future bodily resurrection, but now it's picking up more and more speed, becoming bigger and bigger, and more and more terrible. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And that applies just as well to us, New City. If Jesus dried up old bones are still in a tomb somewhere outside Jerusalem, what I'm doing right now is a complete waste of time. The content of the gospel Paul preaches and everything the church has proclaimed to the world in verses 3 to 7 for the past 2,000 years has no foundation whatsoever if Jesus Christ has not been raised from death. All the preaching, all the heralding, all the gospel proclamation is all an exercise in futility since it has no basis in truth. In reality, it's a fraud. It's a hoax. Take out the resurrection of Jesus and there's nothing left to the Christian's proclamation. There is no good news. There is only cataclysmic judgment. There is only divine wrath. Your faith, three, is useless. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. As one commentator I read memorably puts it, take out the resurrection of Jesus, and there is nothing left on which to rest. Faith, only the decomposing corpse of an itinerant Jewish carpenter-turned-rabbi. 15, more than that, We are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. That means the very reputation, the character, the glory of God is destroyed if there's no such thing as resurrection. It's all a lie being carried out in God's name so that by implication, the Corinthians denial of the resurrection of the dead finally implicates God himself because only God has power over death. And if Jesus indeed rose from the dead, that must mean God raised him, right? But if he did nothing of the sort, if Jesus was an imposter, then it's nothing short of blasphemy to link the name of God almighty with such a person. The apostles are false witnesses who misrepresent God. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. That means if Christ died on the cross and he didn't rise again from death, we would not be saved. It's the cross and the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile you are still in your sins. Let me, let me just restate that, as simply as I know how, that verse. If Jesus did not rise from death, our sin problem remains unresolved. And all this talk of Jesus dying for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures becomes meaningless rubbish, if, in fact, He stayed dead. The unanimous testimony of the Scripture is that the wages of sin is death. Death marks the end result of that separation from God which sin inevitably produces. So if Jesus stayed dead in his tomb, there are only two possible conclusions. Either he was not the sinless person everyone thought him to be, and his death marked his own final separation from God. Or he may have been without personal sin, but his attempts to atone for the sin of the world by his death did not meet with divine approval. Either way, Christians are still in our sin, cut off from God, and we're facing eternal judgment, just like everybody else. And, verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are eternally lost. They perish along with the rest of fallen humanity. Everyone who, who has already died trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're in hell. They're doomed to perish in hell without hope and without God. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus was not raised from death, then any expectation of life beyond death evaporates. We're all deluded fools. Verse thirty two, just skip ahead a bit. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Right? What 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 good is it to follow a guru who can only give hope for this life when eternity awaits? It would make more sense to party like a non Christian hedonist. If the Christian faith is based on an empty gospel and a fraudulent savior, savior, anybody, anybody is better off than the Christian. Jesus isn't Lord of anything, and there is no hope. See, I mean, he's quite relentless in how he's preaching this. But, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Ah, (laughs) that means For all who repent of their sins and believe, for all who accept the reality of Jesus' resurrection through faith and all God has accomplished through it, there is hope. A glorious hope that includes not only (coughs) the forgiveness of sins and therefore fullness of life in the present, but also a glorious future, including a glorified Immortal, resurrection body, just like Jesus' body. Since Christ is indeed raised from death, then neither our faith nor the preaching of the good news is in vain. And since Jesus is alive, believers can know that God will raise those who belong to Jesus and thus will destroy death. In God's sovereign plan, he must defeat death to be all in all, verse 28. And to defeat death entails raising the corpses of believers. And next week, Lord willing, we'll dig deeper into this theological treasure chest as we consider the next 15 verses of this chapter. 15 verses which teach us that God will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. Amen.